1: Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast.
0: The Saskatchewan Act was tabled this week in the provincial legislature, and the act, and I'm reading from uh, from the uh, Twitter feed of the Premier Scott. No, the act confirms exclusive provincial jurisdiction over natural resources and Saskatchewan's economic future within the Canadian Constitution. Uh, Premier Moe, thank you very much for joining us. This has been coming for some time. You had told me about a year ago on this program that it was time for Saskatchewan to have a relationship with the, with, with the federal government similar to that the province of Quebec enjoys. You've taken a significant step here. Please tell us why that was necessary and then please build into the answer as well. What are the fundamentals of the act?
2: why it was necessary uh, and why our initiative over the course of the past number of years has been necessary Saskatchewan is Saskatchewan has largely uh, generated our wealth from uh, natural resource based industries from industries uh, such as mining such as oil production such as uh, agriculture uh, really is the 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 spinal cord of the of the Saskatchewan economy and we're seeing uh, the, the federal government over the last number of years uh, moving forward with a number of solely environmental-focused acts uh, that are having a, an impact on our ability to continue to produce uh, what, in our case, is some of the most sustainable products that are that are produced relative to a their competitors that are anywhere in the world. And and so we feel that we should be uh, expanding our industries in Saskatchewan. We're proud of what we produce and we're very proud of, of how we produce the products that we, that we do. And we want to make more of them available to Canadians and uh, North Americans and, and people around the world. And so this act builds on the white paper that we had released a few years ago, which had identified some of the costs of, of nine federal policies that were put in place. And I'd say this act really has uh uh, three three aspects to it. First is the Act itself, which does uh, reassert, and it's, it's not new area that we're looking for, but it does reassert uh, our provincial ability to develop our natural resources. So that's the first piece. The second piece is uh, we are proposing a unilateral change to the Saskatchewan Act within the Constitution of Canada, very similar to what uh, Quebec has proposed, uh, and the Prime Minister, I would add, has said that Quebec would be able to make that unilateral change, and so we fully expect as being equal uh, equal Canadians, uh, e- provinces being treated equally across the nation, that, that our unilateral constitutional change will be made as well. And the third, uh, if you think back to years ago at the introduction of the carbon tax, uh, my predecessor, uh, former Premier Brad Wall, had asked, had anyone done an economic analysis as to the economic cost of of uh, this policy. And so the third piece is that this Act addresses is the answer to that question. We'll be setting up a tribunal. Uh, the tribunal uh, will be there specifically to... Um, to assess any economic, essentially do an economic impact assessment on uh, any of these policies that are being applied to Saskatchewan industries and, and ultimately Saskatchewan opportunities to, uh, to create wealth in our, in our communities in the province. So first is the act itself. Second is the constitutional change, very similar to what Quebec has proposed. And third is an economic assessment tribunal will be formed.
0: It's unfortunate. Isn't it that uh, this kind of situation has to develop, that a relationship between the province, maybe more than one, and uh, the federal government has to deteriorate to the point that the province has to stand up and say, these are our constitutional rights and we're going to exercise them as far as our natural resources are concerned and as far as agriculture is concerned and to the betterment and the sustenance of our own provincial economy. It's unfortunate that that has to happen.
2: I agree it is un- it is unfortunate as uh you know as as we've For for us in this province, where we are very proud of how we produce our products. We have some of the cleanest potash, oil, uh, some of the cleanest agri-food products. We're moving into the space of critical minerals. We have helium, we have lithium, um, and we're producing all of this at a lower uh, carbon content than any of our competitors around the world. We're very proud of of how we produce these products, and we would invite Canadians to be very proud of how we produce these Canadian-made products and provide them to one another, to North Americans, create continental energy security that's so important, but also provide them to, to people around the world. We export to over 150 countries around the world, and we would ask that all Canadians are proud of, of how we do that in Saskatchewan. Um, the the reason for this is, I, I heard the quote uh, just prior to coming on the air of the Prime Minister saying we need to manage this transition. He's correct, we do. We also need to have our eyes wide open as to how other areas of the world have attempted to manage this transition, and I would say they've done so well incorrectly. And one needs to look no further than the European Union, where they have pushed uh, emitting industries out of their jurisdictions, um, lowered their own greenhouse gas emissions within their their countries or their block of countries, but have become almost entirely reliant and dependent on other areas of the world, namely Russia, to provide uh, that energy security that they seek. So The result uh, of that type of policy in the last 10 or 15 years in the European Union has been uh, much, much higher energy costs and a much, much lower level of energy security for European countries, namely uh, Germany.
0: Yeah. Um, Premier, clearly you haven't heard anything come out of Ottawa that satisfies you or satisfied you that a working relationship, which should exist between the federal government and the province, particularly one that is so uh, heavily involved with natural resources and agricultural production, which is ultimately to the success and the betterment of the country. You haven't heard anything that's come out of Ottawa to satisfy you or at least encourage you that a dialogue and a working relationship could could in fact take place, you're not mincing words with the federal government. So, you're telling them this is the way it is.
2: Yes, and and, and we're not looking to Ottawa anymore for direction on uh, these policies. What we are doing in Saskatchewan is uh, we understand that we produce, uh, you know, the food, fuel, and fertilizer for Canadians and 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 North Americans as well as, as in many, many other areas of the world. And uh, we're going to continue to do that. We're going to continue to drive our our, our sustainability initiatives uh, into those industries. Uh, but we most certainly are going to continue to take care of ourselves. Uh, this is how this province was built. This is how communities in this province were built as by people just taking the initiative um, and leading uh, in many cases. And, and we have many examples of that. And We're going to do that as a province as, as we look ahead. Uh, the, the white paper was the foundation for a number of initiatives. Initiatives uh, that are, are arriving now and will be coming in the weeks and months ahead, um, and they also, this, and that includes this Saskatchewan First Act, which really um, provides direction and, and certainty for Saskatchewan industries, uh, for investments to arrive in Saskatchewan to create jobs, and for us to play our role in providing some of the most sustainable food and energy to uh, our, our nation, our continent, and the world.
0: Premier, I'm going to come back to this whole idea about it's unfortunate that the relationship between the federal government and some provinces has not been what it should be and particularly on the issue of natural resources we go back to Bill C48 and 69 and the letter you and five other premiers sent to the Prime Ministers a couple of years ago saying look you're, you're damaging national unity you're damaging the economy that we cannot proceed on under this in, in, in this direction and nothing has changed as far as Ottawa's perspective is concerned. Are you expecting have you planned for pushback from mr. Trudeau, who's planning out very far for a prime minister of a minority government with the lowest popular support of any political party to form a government in the history of Canada. Uh, I suspect that Ottawa, at least the Liberals federally, will not appreciate the Saskatchewan First Act.
2: I don't know what the what the federal government or the Prime Minister's stance that will be on this it should be positive uh they've as far as the constitutional amendment goes, this is very similar to what Quebec's doing. He said Quebec most certainly can do that, so we would expect that um, that is really a non-issue. They, they should be accepting of the constitutional changes that we've put forward to ensure that we can continue to develop uh, our non-renewable resources, our forestry industry, um, our agricultural industry. And so w- we would expect that what is uh, good for Quebec from the Prime Minister's stance most certainly would be good for uh, Saskatchewan. But uh, to your earlier comment, it, it is it is unfortunate because there's there's nothing new in this act. Uh, what this act is doing is reasserting the provincial jurisdiction that we uh, already uh, have in this province um but is being infringed on uh with various environmental policies nine of which we identified in the in the white paper um but as as we move forward whatever the response is to this act or to other the bits of conversations that we might be having in in the country today or or into the future, Canadians are larger than that. Um, you know, as I said, we we would invite Canadians to be uh, equally as proud of the products that come out of Saskatchewan, not just because of you know the the opportunity they provide in in, in supplying energy and food, uh, but also be proud of the quality of the products and and how they're produced are uh, the most some of the most sustainable products in the world. And and we in Saskatchewan and across the three provinces, I think. I have a duty to be equally as proud. Of products that are being produced in other areas of Canada and and sold back to us in some cases, or or uh, provided to those in the U.S. or around the world. When when a an electric manu- electric car manufacturing plant is uh, negotiated and landed in Ontario, we're, we're proud of that. Um, that plant could be anywhere in North America, or around the world, and it's good that it's in Ontario. And so I would say we as Canadians uh, need to maybe just take a step back after it's been a couple of uh, a number of very challenging years. Uh, maybe with the federal government, maybe with, uh, you know, a global pandemic, but really look at the the diversity that we have in this nation and look at it as a, as a strength, a strength of Canadians that's far beyond uh, whoever the federal government might be. Uh, get back to supporting uh, one another in the diverse ways that we generate wealth. Uh, have faith that we're uh, producing these products in the, in the most sustainable way that we can, which is in the interest of, of all of us. And really get back to being a, a strong nation that we maybe have, maybe taken some time away from the
0: last number. Yeah, we also have a real problem dealing with one another. As far as interprovincial trade is concerned, the regulations there are very difficult. And we know the pipeline issues that have developed over the last, uh, particularly over the last decade or so. But really, when when we look at the world today, Premier, and we see the inflationary uh, climb, the, the trend, the, uh, the interest rates are climbing, uh, housing, uh, homes, home values are dropping. People are going hungry in some parts of the world. In fact, we know that five, 5.8 million Canadians, including 1.4 million children, are dealing with uh, food security issues. When we look at the big picture in that particular uh, uh, perspective, we should be glad that Saskatchewan and your neighbor to the west of you, who is not offside with uh, with what you're doing with the Saskatchewan first Act. I've spoken with Premier Smith about that. Uh, we should be glad that we have the provinces the prairie provinces that can produce so much of what this country needs and really so much of what the world needs. It's really to ultimately to each and every Canadian's advantage, including Mr. Gilbo and including mr. Trudeau <laughs> absolutely. The uh, um, You know,
2: we're seeing on full display uh, for the world to see uh, in, in the European Union what happens when you have a, a flawed policy process that is focusing only on the environment and is not uh, allowing any conversation around uh, national energy security, uh, national food security uh, to be part of those conversations. And I would say that we should not head down that, that same dark path here in Canada. Yes, we should do better with uh, in how we produce the products that we do. We are doing that in And I know we are doing that across Canada. Um, But we need to keep at the forefront, I would say, uh, not only national food and energy security as a a priority, but I would also put forward continental uh, energy security in particular. Uh, Continental energy security is is of paramount importance to us as as Canadians, Uh, the United States, uh, despite Uh, The the challenges we may have from from day to day uh, are our largest ally in the the international stage, and we need to take care of, of, uh, we need to ensure we're prioritizing continental energy security, continental food security. If we're not going to do it as North Americans, who do you think in the world will do that for us? Nobody. Nobody.
0: Premier, if I may, we have a minute left, uh, and I'm going to drift a little bit off topic here, but it's, it's very significant. We have the uh, investigation, the, the inquiry in Ottawa, underway as far as the invocation of the Emergencies Act is concerned. And we've heard that Saskatchewan really wasn't, and this is a position you made at your, your lawyers made at the inquiry, Saskatchewan wasn't consulted on the implementation or the invoking of the Emergencies Act. You were just told it was going to happen, Correct.
2: Correct. I'd I'd, uh, communicate it back. I said, if if the the federal government is bent on this, um, get the blessing of any provincial premier. You don't have to do it nationwide. Uh, Do it wherever, whatever Premier thinks they need to do it, then go ahead and do it in that area. But listen, it it was unnecessary. The Emergencies Act was, in my opinion, uh, entirely unnecessary. There was four blockades uh, across uh, the nation. There was three at border crossings, one in Alberta, one in Manitoba, one at the Windsor Bridge. Three of those were removed with all of the current powers that uh, the RCMP had. Uh, my understanding is is no police force requested additional powers like uh, those in the Emergency Act. And then the Emergency Act was was implemented to remove uh, the last one. So if you could remove three under the current regular conditions, uh, why did you require the Emergencies Act for the fourth? And so I, I think it was entirely unnecessary. A credit to the RCMP uh, and the OPP in the case of the Windsor Bridge for the um, utilizing the, the laws that we have in this nation to ensure that those uh, were dismantled. And um, we just believe that the Emergencies Act was entirely an you know, overreach and, and was not necessary. <laughs>
0: Sean Gardner was named by Forbes as the number one social media power influencer for 2013. He co-founded Huffington Post's Twitter powerhouses series, and he's experienced a great deal of success through Twitter as a keynote global conferences speaker. We're going to talk to Mr. Gardner about his experience with social media, and we're going to talk to him about Twitter, the current reality and what may yet come. But I found this, Sean. Thank you very much for joining us. I'd love your story. President Obama was your first follower on Twitter. Thanks for joining us. What's the story there?
1: Wow. Well, uh, well, thank you, Roy, uh, really for um, for allowing me to come on and just talk about Twitter, social media, my experiences uh, from social media, uh, and you know, and so on. But I joined social media. I guess you could say the current crop. You might say like Twitter. Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, the social, the hot social media at that point, Uh, maybe January 17th, 2009. And just to be real quick about it, um, I uh, was a and still am a, a, a fan, a supporter of, of President Obama. So at the time uh, when I joined, I was just on there just for maybe a couple of days and then maybe right after his uh, inauguration, right after his inauguration, I started following like maybe 50 accounts. His was the very first account that followed me. Um, and, and so then I said, okay, well, you know, I wanna see if this is true. Cause you know, sometimes when you join different accounts, uh, via social media accounts, it may say that it's that person, but it's really not. And back then, there was no verification at that point. So um, so I went to his, his site, BarackObama.com, and then I saw that he was on some of these other uh, uh, sites as well, because, you know, back before Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, just to be real brief, there was MySpace, Black Planet, uh, Asian Avenue, some of those, those are from the early 2000s. And he was on those, but I looked at Twitter, I clicked on it and it went directly to his Twitter account. I said, okay, this is him. And at that point, uh, believe it or not, I had zero, zero <laughs> Twitter followers because, you know, for six months, I didn't know what I, what I was doing. And so, but I had zero Twitter followers and he had 2.2 million. <laughs> so so I was like, true. okay, I, I could do this. And, you know, that was kind of a high and, you know, it, 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 just like social media, it just goes highs and lows and highs and lows. But that was probably like a high that just took me all the way through 2009.
0: So. Oh, I have to tell you, I can't imagine. Them. What do you do? You get the sitting president of the United States as your first follower. How do you follow uh, that? What do you follow
1: uh, that with? I know. You know what's funny is that now he's maybe like, I guess he's like 140 million. He's the most followed person on Twitter. Yeah. Um, and I'm maybe like, I guess I'm like seven hundred and sixty something thousand or whatever it is. So, uh, I, I, you know, he, I'm not sure our Twitter accounts have kept pace, but it's still pretty cool. He, he, and I still follow each other to this day. And um, he apparently at that, I uh, think at its height, he, his account was following like five to six million people, but he apparently only now follows like four hundred. 500,000 and I'm one of the accounts that he follows so yeah. I guess I'm doing something right you,
0: know? you you are doing a lot right because it's yeah. also been a and I shouldn't say it's been it is a tremendous career for you it's work you were a very much present individual on uh, on social media and it's turned into a uh, speaking uh, keynote speaking career for you you're involved in so many different aspects of life and I think perhaps because of the uh, significance of social media so before I ask you about Twitter Elon Musk and where this is all going plus <laughs> The blue, plus the blue tick, right? So, yeah. we'll just in about thirty seconds, give us a bit of a, uh, a summary of the influence social media has had, continues to have, and may have on our society.
1: Wow. Well, um, social media has influenced just about everything: business, politics, sexuality, education, um, and uh, and I and I know definitely for for a bit, people were saying, ah. It's going to be like a you know a fad or whatever it may be, but um, no one saw it coming. Like say two thousand four, two thousand five, when it got hot, and then it just grew and grew and grew. And, and just to put a button on it, I think that um, at one point, you know, it, it was kind of maybe slow when it got to about maybe thirty to forty percent of the world on social media. But according to the United Nations most recent numbers, it's over sixty percent. And I think what happens is the next wave of social media. Will probably be mostly female. Um, these are individuals who probably also are not quite as educated as maybe the first thirty to twenty percent of people who are on social media, and they're also very rural. So, social media has, has played a big part in shaping society in tech in general, and, and I and I really expect that you know to continue.
0: Yeah, and in such a short period of time. So, yes. if we if we look at the current incarnation of Twitter. The one that's been, well, the one that's been developing over the last couple of months and particularly with incredible speed over the last week or two, did you expect the purchase of Twitter by Elon Musk to actually take place?
1: You know what? Um, at first, yes. And then I guess he maybe wanted to, I guess, back out. That's, you know, that's definitely pretty um, public. Um, and I, I think that he probably maybe was got together with his advisors and said, you know what? I think we can do this let's go on let's see what we can monetize what we can bring back because the word is that he's bringing back vine um which is you know the short video uh, app that that twitter purchased uh in the early excuse me in the mid um the, the mid part of the last uh decade and i felt like vine you know should never have just kind of gone away but elon's bringing it back and i think that elon i don't you know it's it's hard to really to to really talk about elon as it relates to Twitter, because he has not really made like a he has he hasn't really had like a sit down interview about some of the things that have taken place with almost warp speed over the last week as we you know we're talking about it. But I I don't know I, I didn't expect the purchase I you know um over the summer, but I just think now that he has it um don't look at really what like the person, if you will, kind of focus really on the platform itself, what's being put on it, what's being proposed. And if you don't like it, speak up. If you do like it, also speak up. Um, There are a number of changes that are are really going to fundamentally alter the site. Uh, And I guess, you know, we'll see where you know things go, and we'll see how people really, um, em- you know, embrace all these changes.
0: Yeah, he's a different dude, that's for sure. I mean, he he yeah. does things his way, and I I wonder, and I I'll ask you this now, before I get into the specifics about Twitter and your opinions on what's sure. going to happen with the site. Do you believe that what Elon Musk does with Twitter is inevitably going to affect what the other social media platforms do? Will he have sufficient influence that he will create
1: direction? involuntarily for the other platforms you know what i you know he he has the that he has the potential to do that and i'm gonna tell you maybe two different areas and then maybe we can kind of go into it it can dovetail and some, maybe some of the other questions you're going to ask me one thing is about like verification all right i can just go ahead and 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 kind of go into that i'm verified i was verified on twitter in 2017 and i you know i had worked very hard not to be verified, but just really to get my name out there, my presence, and then Twitter gave that to me in maybe October of 2017. So I have mixed feelings about paying eight bucks <laughs> to maintain that. Yeah. Um. It, I guess it would just really depend on what, because it's going to be a part of Twitter Blue, and uh, and if 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 this is something that works, then yes, expect some of the other sites, maybe not to mimic that. You know, I don't know but they will put together some sort of package. Um, For example, Facebook has talked about for years about maybe putting together two different, like two tiers. One is the free service that we have now. And then one is a paid service that has all types of perks, if you will. And so I think that if this works, then yes, you will, you know, please expect, Facebook or at least Meta and their properties, Facebook, Instagram, and maybe to some degree WhatsApp and maybe some of these others to put together the same type um, of, or excuse me, a, a similar service. Uh, he's also talking about, Elon talking about maybe uh, charging people, uh, I mean, it's sort of a LinkedIn styled um, proposal, uh, I guess, regarding you get X, Y, Z amount of like direct messages that you can you know people you can direct message uh, and then maybe some sort of paying certain, something that like I guess maybe fifty dollars or whatever it may be whether it's fifty dollars or a hundred dollars but it's going to be some sort of service where maybe five you get a certain amount for like five dms and then you can't dm anybody else you know what I mean and then maybe something a little bit more for an unlimited amount of DMs. That's out there. Uh, we'll see how that, that sticks. But that's something that he's considering. And then, like I said, bringing back Vine. I, I, I think if I can just get back real quick to the verification part. I think the verification issue is very interesting. There are a lot of individuals I know who have just voiced also either mixed feelings or just a flat out, no, I'm not paying. But just to, to, to kind of say this, as I thought about it, during the pandemic, a lot of people Sat back and just said, Hey, you know, what, 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 where is my life? What am I doing? And as a result, so many people, millions upon millions, have started their own either side hustle, you know, um, they've started their own business. So if you are someone who's trying to get some sort of traction, right, with your business, I think the blue check mark. Uh, definitely would make sense for you. You know, it makes sense, you know, I mean, mean, real clear sense in that regard, you know, and most of these individuals are women. I know that uh, women-led businesses don't get necessarily the type of funding that male-led businesses get, and this is worldwide. So if you're trying to just present this good face and really build some instant legitimacy for your business and what it's doing, I think the blue check mark, that's, that service, that is a part of the Twitter Blue, would 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 essentially make make sense for you. So I think yeah, it, it that that uh, the issue of like DMs, there are a number of things out there floating around, but I think those two come to mind as you know potential services that could make sense for somebody who's trying to really build some legitimacy. All right, uh,
0: Sean, what's your overall impression? Of Elon Musk's changes to Twitter immediately after taking ownership of the platform, and I'm talking about job losses, you know, g- executive team gone, um, varying percentages. It uh, depends on who you talk to, of the employees of Twitter gone. With threats of more to come, what's your sense of of what he's done so far?
1: Well, again, I again, I, I would like to to hear him talk about it. I I think this there was um, something he put out saying that this was temporary. You know that 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 the the loss of of um, well, you know, like when, when he dissolved uh, the board. Uh, again, he's trying probably to just kind of make the board, you know, uh, uh, in in whatever it is that his whatever it is that he's thinking about, whatever ideas he has, he's trying to to bring on a board that that you know typically reflects that. Obviously, people have their own views, and you want a diverse board, you know, to to, to something I'm talking about. Points of views here, right. um, and I guess that's maybe what what his calculation is there. Um, and hey, it's his business, so he can he can definitely do that. Uh, as it relates to the job losses, I think the one issue that was really glaring uh, to me was when I guess the entire AI ethics team um, was uh, fired. Now I know that AI ethics, because you know this is definitely a, an area that I've been really uh studying and 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 gravitating towards uh since 2016 i've actually integrated things into my speeches you know whether it's here in europe and asia talking not just about ai tools but also about how like the growth of ai will really necessitate an ai ethics um you know team or at least someone this this point person that's talking about it and that's really engaging the company as they move forward. Now, artificial intelligence is something that Elon Musk has talked about um, and is really a part of what he does with Tesla and SpaceX. Right. right. So I, don't, I don't think that he's not that he's not going to have an AI ethics team there. Uh, I just like to know you know what his thinking was on that and is it just consistent with like say the 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 employees again like half of twitter i guess was fired and then the board is it that he just wants his own ai ethics team um i'd like to maybe if i had a question for him that would basically be like the big one
0: so here's a question that i just received from a listener wants to know whether Twitter will remain user-friendly or mm-hmm. whether Twitter will become less user-friendly because of the changes that Mr. Musk may, in fact, bring to the game. As you said, he hasn't spoken yet; hasn't done an interview, but there's a, its always nothing wrong with speculating based on what's uh, on, on what we know about the man and what yeah. he's done so far. So do you think it's going to remain as user-friendly as it has been?
1: You know, I think, it, I, you know, I, I would like to hope that it will be, because I'm a definitely a hopeful person. I am a realist, uh, but I still sprinkle that with some hope every single day on on a number of things. And on Twitter, um, the one thing that, well, the one thing that I, I, I can tell you that has really been very uh, a blessing for me is um, I actually love the content moderation tools you know, uh, that are available. There's this tool there, but that allows you to block certain words. So for example, if somebody is tweeting you yeah. and they're targeting you and I've been targeted, uh, you know, un- un- unnecessarily by different people, you know, and like I hate cool. to do
0: this to you. We've about 30 seconds. So okay, yeah,
1: but, but I'm going to say, I just think, yes, if, if, uh, if, the, the content moderation tools allow you to block words and phrases. And so, you know, look, I, I just think that if he can keep that and keep some of these other tools that, again, that can make it user-friendly while also growing it, I think you'll be in a really good place.
0: It is fascinating what's going on in social media. You're absolutely correct; it's such an yep. important component to all of our lives now. How would we live yes. for 24 hours if it went if it went away? I think there would be well, there would be mass chaos in I the agree. world. Yeah, right? I agree. Yeah, no, there'd be so many collisions and intersections we wouldn't be able it's to. It's a
1: fight that's going to be around. I just think that you just have to figure <laughs> out yeah. how it's going to look and how it's going to impact us.
0: Sean Gardner, thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it. Good talking to you.
1: Thank you.
2: The emergency act was, in my opinion, uh, entirely unnecessary. There was four blockades uh, across uh, the nation. There was three at border crossings, one in Alberta, one in Manitoba, one at the Windsor Bridge. Three of those were removed with all of the current powers that uh, the RCMP had. Uh, my understanding is is no police force requested additional powers like uh, those in the Emergency Act. And then the Emergency Act was, was implemented to remove uh, the last one. So if you could remove three under the current regular conditions, uh, why did you require the Emergencies Act for the
0: fourth? The hearing continues. The inquiry continues in Ottawa, the Royal Commission on the Invoking of the Emergencies Act. And they continue to hear witnesses. This week, organizers and leaders of the Freedom Convoy were cross-examined. And a lawyer for the Freedom Convoy uh, testified these leaders received leaks from sympathetic police sources in several different agencies, Ottawa Police, OPP, RCMP, and CSIS. So I was curious. I thought, well, what are the, what are the police officers who you interact with who are on the street, um, community officers? How do they feel about this? Tom Stamatakis is the president of the Canadian Police Association, and uh, he joins us on the Roy Green Show. Tom, thank you very much uh, for taking the time. How are you?
3: Good. It's been a uh, uh, challenging several months, uh, but uh, doing well.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I wanted to ask you a little later in the interview, but let, let me start right now. What's it like to be a police officer? On the street, frontline officer in Canada at this time, so it seems to be a growing lack of respect in some areas, some parts of our of our larger national community. Officers losing their lives on the job and actively being targeted. What's it like for police officers day to day?
3: Well, it's been a challenging time, uh, particularly over this last two and a half to three years. Uh, somehow. The, the police in in this country have become a target for for many groups and individuals and are often blamed for broader societal issues that the police have very little control over or influence over so it's been particularly particularly challenging and then of course over the last you know 6 weeks or so we've seen uh you know f- four officers murdered um just just for doing their jobs and, and, and who they are, and, and, and that's unusual in Canada, and, I, and it's had a significant impact. And then throw into that, um, you know, this, these the, the increasing frequency of protests for a variety of issues, and police are often in the middle between uh, trying to enforce the law and, and governments that uh, create legislation or make policies, and, and the public who... Who do have a legitimate right right to protest and express their views about policies and legislation that they they don't agree with, and, and so all of that, you know, adding to that uh, well documented mental health challenge in our industry, a lack of resources in communities right across the country, and it's just a it's just a really difficult time for police in this country at the moment. Yeah,
0: I've heard that. Uh Officers, increasingly, when they reach retirement age, um, option to retire, they take that option maybe more frequently than they had in the past. How, do you see, how does the Canadian Police Association view what's going on right now in Ottawa, and uh, and, and let's within the greater context of the invoking of the Emergencies Act, uh, how, how, do you, how does the CPA view the invoking of the Emergencies Act and uh, and what happened in Ottawa in February?
3: Well, look, the CPA was completely supported the invoking of the Emergencies Act, uh, given the the situation in Ottawa and how it devolved over a number of weeks, um, and it, and it really ties back to what I said previously when you asked me, you know, what it's like to be a police officer in this country at the moment. Um, you know, we had a situation there where we had police officers working. An incredible number of hours and difficult circumstances. The te- the the weather was 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 challenging. Uh, these are police officers who are t- uh, taken away from their regular duties, which means you know there's a there's a knock-on effect when this happens. When these demands are are placed upon um, you know police services and police officers that are already stretched way too thin. Uh, you know they're taken away from their regular duties. Those duties aren't being done. Uh, it has an, a broader impact on the community beyond where the protest is happening. So, so we we 100% supported the invocation of the Emergencies Act so that measures could be taken to end that uh, protest quickly. It was having not only a significant impact on police officers in the city of Ottawa, but there were police personnel that were being redeployed from communities right across the country to assist with that. Uh, event and and that again has a, a, a significant impact not only on the police officers but also on their families that that uh, have to deal with the implications of having people in their homes you know working too much and not having any time off and missing time with their families so uh, given the situation and how it devolved there I, you know in my view it was the right thing to do
0: okay so we have different police services who uh, disagree. Uh, on the invoking of the uh, the Emergencies Act, just heard the Premier of Saskatchewan with his position on it. Um, should people be surprised that police officers are taking divergent views on the EA?
3: Well, what I would say is it's easy for people that um, don't have to that, that aren't on the front lines that aren't. E- in in the theater at that particular time to have all kinds of opinions about what should have happened or didn't happen. They're the ones they're forming these opinions oftener, arriving at these conclusions from the safety of a of a warm office or or uh, a comfortable environment. And, and I'm speaking on behalf of those police officers who were freezing cold, that weren't getting regular breaks, that didn't know when they were going to get their next meal didn't know when they're going to be able to go home. Those are the people that I'm speaking on behalf of. So I I, I don't, you know, I don't really have a lot of time for uh, some of the divergent opinions that are, are, um, you know, now being talked about after the fact with the benefit of hindsight and 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 a number of other factors that usually come into play.
0: Yeah, the inquiry is going to be hindsight. It's going to be investigating whether the federal government did the correct thing in invoking the Emergencies Act, which is the nuclear option for any government. Are you surprised there's been testimony that police agencies, in some cases, provided information to Freedom Convoy organizers?
3: I am surprised. You know, I... I think there's going to be more examination of that. I'd like to know more about it and, and, and know specifically, um, you know, what the context was. Was this a case of, you know, isolated incidences involving individuals that perhaps were disgruntled or had some other um, motivation or, or is this a, a broader issue? And I would be surprised if it was um, as significant or as broad as as, you know, some of the the people who have given testimony have made it out to be, and and those people, I would suggest perhaps have um, you know mo- reasons or motives for for making statements like that.
0: Our good friend, Dr. Eric Cam, macroeconomist at Toronto Metropolitan University. And I want to talk to Dr. Cam about. The mini-budget, I just don't like that term, mini-budget. It's like, we're not quite going to tell you what we're going to do, but we'll hint. Um, So before I talk to you about that, our last guest, our last guest, Sean Gardner, named as the number one social media power influencer by Forbes, his story is Barack Obama follows him. What is this about Barack Obama following you, Dr. Cam?
4: Hi, Roy. I don't exactly know how this happened, but when I created my Twitter account, I did so almost primarily for my students. So I could post things and they could follow me and I could put up media articles and then, of course, integrate, you know, invaluable things like the Roy Green show. Uh, But not long after I implemented my Twitter account, I found out that I was followed by one President Barack Obama. And maybe, maybe he has me confused with you because I can totally understand <laughs> so. why Mr. Obama would want to listen to the Roy Green show. I'm a little more confused at why good. the former president of the United States would want to follow me. But I took it as the honor that it is and told everybody that I knew.
0: Uh, well, now you've told a whole bunch more people. I, that's you're really good. Eh? He wants to really follow Roy Green, not me. Yes, he wants to follow you, and I'm starting to feel left out. So would you get in touch with your friend President Obama and tell him to follow me? There's a blue tick beside my name.
4: Oh, I don't even have a blue tick, and I'm sure, as you know, what not going to pay for the blue tick no, either. No, uh, but no, I, I will. I'll, I'll speak to him and uh, Michelle, and I'll tell them to get right on that.
0: You're too much. Um, so, let's get at this mini-budget that was brought forward by the Deputy Prime Minister. She, you know, Have you noticed uh, Minister Freeland makes it a point to mention she's the Deputy Prime Minister more and more now? There may be something there. But what is your sense about this mini-budget? I think we can do without mini-budgets. I just like to have the real thing and work properly. But, but what's your sense of what was delivered?
4: You know, I have to tell you that, and I'm not even trying to be humorous. I remember when Doug Ford made some comment about... Um, staying a la maison during the pandemic. And when I looked at this, my first comment was dans La Toilette with this mini budget, because this is not a mini budget, Roy. This isn't a budget. This isn't anything. I mean, there, there's no there there. And I've read it a couple times. I've read a little bit of what I consider to be biased analysis, both ways of it, but there's nothing here. And it says right in About the third or fourth line, the update does not include any personal or corporate tax rate changes. So, of course, they lost me at hello. What this seems to be is a furtherance or continuation of a government that seems to be obsessed with um, a green movement and trying to green the economy at any cost. Uh, Because they talk a lot about a clean technology investment tax credit They talk about a clean hydrogen tax credit, electricity generation systems, stationary electricity systems. And before the good listenership thinks I have any idea what I'm talking about, I don't. I'm just reading back what I read. But I know what is not there. And I saw nothing about jobs. I saw nothing about inflation. I saw nothing about spending. I saw nothing about interest rates. So I don't know what else to call this other than a very pathetic State of the Union address
0: right yeah political statement semi and and they're trying to emulate I gather just looking at this as well and I don't have the kind of macroeconomic uh, experience you do but I, I look at this and I, I kept saying Biden's IRA, Showing up uh, between the lines, the Inflation Reduction Act. It just seems to me that the, the, the Trudeau government is trying to follow in the footsteps of Joe Biden, and we can't survive if we're going to play in that in, in that arena with the Americans. Can we?
4: No, not at all. You're talking about two different frameworks, and I think people forget this sometimes when they say, "Well, America is doing this, and we're doing that." We are a small open economy; they are a gigantic open economy they get to set the rules we have to play within them and that's a very very different dynamic and roy you don't have to be a macro economist to know where we're sitting right now in a time of extreme inflation prices are not going up slowly they are spiraling up and what do we have to show for it we've put the housing market we've taken the bottom right out of it there's really frankly right now at a point in time nothing left of the housing market Consumers, Consumer spending is starting to drop, but at what cost? You're talking about, as we said, the conference board says if you make $70,000 a year, you're going to be $3,000 poorer in disposable income next year. So I see nothing in this, nothing that addresses anything that would even wake a macroeconomist up from a nap, unless, of course, you're turned on by things like you know, a, a minimum tax for high earners, or they talk more about some rules about flipping property uh, and the, and the Canada workers benefit. But again, these things are so, so minor in in a time where people are going to start losing their homes. I mean, everybody asks me the same question. You always ask me what students ask me and what people ask me. The number one question I get right now is this hasn't hit the labor market. When is it going to hit the labor market? And the answer is sooner than you think. And when it does, when, it, when the labor market starts to follow in the footsteps, Roy, of the housing market, remember I said it first, we are in big trouble.
0: Yeah. Remember as well that uh, this country in 2021, University of Toronto study, and we spoke to the professor who's the author of the study, 5.8 million Canadians were living with food insecurity in 2021. This before the inflation went insane. 1.4 million of that 5.8 million are children. The situation's only gotten worse. So last weekend... I spoke with uh, Kirsten Beardsley, the CEO of Food Banks Canada, and they issued their report. Never have food banks been used as much as they are now. Never in the history of this country and the history of food banks in Canada have they been used as much as they are now. And I took some phone calls from people who were stressed food-wise, who were facing real food security issues. And then I received an email. We're going to be talking to the gentleman who sent me the email tomorrow. And what he and his wife are facing is really disturbing. And the food that they do without is really disturbing. And, and Professor Cam, when you've got home, well, it's probably over 6 million now. Out of a population of 38 million, dealing with food insecurity already at a time of high inflation. Food inflation outpacing regular inflation. Why in the name of common sense or good thinking or decent government would a, would a federal government not make that a priority? At least talk about it in your mini budget or whatever you're delivering.
4: And this is the thesis of my discussion. This, this is really when the rubber hits the road. People are having a hard time feeding and housing their children. We are not talking about people that are having a hard time going on cruises or picking between which Christmas break. These are people deciding, should we eat tonight or should we let the children eat tonight? That is where we are. It is not a joke. But I look through this joke of a mini budget, Roy, and you're right. I see nothing prescriptive about the economy. They keep shoving wind and solar power down our throats. And that's wonderful. When the economy is booming and inflation's back to 2% and GDP growth is stable, then I think we can talk about some Clean Air Act. But until then, why they make this a front and center issue is so beyond me as an economist, as a human, as a father. I'm telling you, Roy, you're looking for an answer and you just can't get it from me. And that makes me cry because there is nothing in here to address the most pressing problem in our society today. And if it's not today, it will be tomorrow. And it's poverty, nothing less.
0: Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you find your favorites.